Hello and welcome to CSDS Asia Matters, the podcast where we aim to go behind the headlines to discuss the biggest stories taking place in the world's most dynamic region. I'm Andrew People. Well, South Korea has undoubtedly emerged as a major player both in regional and increasingly global geopolitics. A remarkable period of economic growth in recent decades has led it to become the world's 10th largest economy, home to global corporate giants such as Samsung and Hyundai. Yet the country's post-World War II politics has been marked by drama, particularly as it transitioned to democracy in the 1980s and, more recently, as the threat from neighbour North Korea has intensified. Meanwhile, South Korea's growing influence on the world stage has been buttressed by its extraordinary cultural success, particularly with the rise of K-pop and the popularity of Korean cinema. Our regular contributor, Ramon Pacheco Pardo, the career chair at the Centre for Security, Diplomacy and Strategy at the Brussels School of Governance, has written a terrific history of modern Korea, entitled From Shrimp to Whale, in which he captures many of these themes. He joins us today to discuss the book, and we're also delighted to have with him Kim and mi president at the Ihua Women's University in Seoul. Thank you both so much for joining us, and hello to, to both of you. Ramon, could I turn to you first? Your book's title, as I mentioned, is From Shrimp to Whale. Explain to us first where that phrase came from, and why you think it applies to the recent history of, of Korea. Basically, the title of the book came first uh, on this occasion. So before I even started writing it, uh, I knew it was the title I want to have and the publishers were okay with it. And, and this comes from the Korean phrase that a shrimp that is caught uh, among whales has uh, its back crushed by the whales. And the idea in the past was that, that Korea was this uh, shrimp uh, in the past caught between China and, and Japan, more recently caught between the U.S. And, and, and China. Some people also say the U.S. and the Soviet Union during the Cold War, but certainly the U.S. and China as well more recently. Uh, and what I wanted to capture is that I don't believe that this is necessarily still the case. Uh, I'm not saying, of course, that Korea is still not caught in global geopolitics or in the competition between Washington and, and, and Beijing that we have today, but that it is not a shrimp anymore and that it is able to stand by itself to these giants, uh, as you mentioned, certainly in the area of culture, but we've seen more recently also in the area of uh, politics, uh, security as well, and obviously economically, there has been this huge uh, economic development. Can we talk about some of the themes that you identify as running through Korean history? I mean, you spend most of the book on Korea's modern history, but you look back over the, the broader sweep. Firstly, there's the legacy Korea has of being under the control, you, you refer to it there, or at least under the heavy influence first of China, and then, of course, most obviously in the 20th century under the control of Japan. How do Koreans now see that history? And how do you think it has shaped Korean identity? Well, what I tried to do in, in the book, I talked to as many people as possible uh, in Korea, of course, and then conducted as much research as, as possible over a number of, of many years. And I think there were a couple of themes uh, that really came out. One of them was this idea about how this has reinforced uh, a distinct uh, Korean identity. Not that it didn't exist before, but this, this idea that some historians, for example, trace back to the late 19th century, early 20th century, when they say truly separate Korean identity was forged, not only among the elites, but also among the general population of, of Korea, to show the distinctiveness of the history of, 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 of the country, the culture of the country, etc., uh, etc. Et and I think that's quite important because I, I wouldn't say it is obviously the only 
dominant idea that we have in Korea today about what being uh, Korean means. For example, there's this idea of uh, so-called civic nationalism, and many Koreans feel that even if you, racially you are not Korean, you can still be part of the Korean community. But I think that's quite important. Secondly, I think this idea of trying to forge an independent path. Uh, for example, now we have the, of course, the alliance with the US that is going to celebrate uh, 70 years uh, next year. Uh, but how many Koreans, even uh, within the alliance, when it comes to foreign policy, they seek to have autonomy and independent uh, foreign policy. And, and clearly, when it comes to economics, when it comes to culture as well, trying to show the distinctiveness and, and, and independence of, of Korean culture, not necessarily rejecting foreign influences, but if necessarily uh, adapting them or uh, combining them with Korea's own roots. And I think this is quite important as well. Unmi, I wanted to bring you in here. Is what Ramon's saying echoing with your perspective from inside South Korea itself? Do you feel that Korea has emerged now, this this idea of going from shrimp to whale and escaping, as it were, the, the excessive influence of outside forces? That's an era that's now passed. I, I wonder what your perspective on this is. First of all, thank you for inviting me to this very interesting session. Ramon's book, latest book, is I think a really a welcome addition that goes over many different topics from Berzai's views. So I really appreciate the work that he has done. And I agree to a certain extent what Ramon just said about shrimp to whale. I think the perception is a little different from inside vis-a-vis -vis from the outside. Koreans, because we've had this very rapid and tumultuous period of development, democratization, and living under a security threat from North Korea, the perception inside is much more negative, is too strong a word, but much more concerned about where we are, where we ought to be. I think when I'm abroad and uh, meeting people at the United Nations and other universities, they see Korea's rise as remarkable and see what Seoul is today. But Koreans living inside Korea, people in my generation, I'm in my 60s, uh, 50s, 70s, still remember when Korea was an extremely poor country. Many of them went through the war, colonial period, and so on. So their perception of Korea's rise is still, uh, it seems real, but it seems also like it could be taken back any moment, which I don't believe. But there's this concern that we might may fall back, so we shouldn't be opening our champagne bottles too soon and celebrating when we should be concerned about internal issues, problems, weaknesses that we still see that we need to overcome. Just to stay with you and, and me, just to round this out, I mean, where does that sense of insecurity come from these days? It is, is it a sense that Korea's economic success is fragile or that there are political tensions or that just general geopolitics means that this, the situation remains unstable? I think it comes from several different sources. I think internally for those people who went through this rapid development in their own lifetime, see where we began and are concerned that we may fall back. Uh, secondly, in spite of our tremendous success in economic development, democratization, the security issue is still very prevalent, and in some ways it feels ever more great in our lives. And finally, in Ramon's book, he talks about the transition from shrimp to whale, but we're still caught 
even though we may not see ourselves as a shrimp, maybe a mackerel or I don't know what, maybe a squid. Uh, <laughs> the, the whales have also grown and their presence in the world have grown and their influence is very palpable. And when they ask Korea to take sides or to make it a, a simple analogy, where we are, where they are, are very critical. People are watching us, people are watching the two superpowers. So it's not an easy answer, and it's not that different from what we had experienced or learned from our history. So I think that's where the insecurity or discomfort comes from. So Ramon, you should have renamed your book From Shrimp to Mackerel, maybe. <laughs> You make the case in your book, Ramon, I think one of the things you're keen to to stress is how much of South Korea's rise is down to the efforts of the Korean people themselves, obviously, uh, and the transition to democracy and the economic growth that we've seen. At the same time, though, there have clearly been some very important figures in South Korea's post-World War II history. Chief among them, I would say, from reading the book, would be Park Chung-hee, the president during the 1960s and the 1970s, who really led South Korea's economic transformation during that period from what was a very poor country, frankly, back in the 1950s. Where do you put the emphasis then? Do you see South Korea's growth more as a bottom-up or a top-down driven success story? I I just wonder where you see that balance lying during this last period. Yeah, I mean, I think that the simple answer is a combination of both, right? But uh, I'm going to try to nuance my my answer. I, I, I think you're right that in the book, I try to play up the role of the of the South Korean people. I mean, to an extent, is because um, when I was uh, researching and, and, and studying about Korean success, a lot of the literature focuses on, on the leaders of the country, right? Political leader, leaders, business leaders, and of course they do they do matter. Not all countries uh, have leaders, even if it was during a dictatorship, that actually wanted to make the the country wealthier. I mean, we have many examples of dictatorial regimes where where the leaders of the country are simply taking all the wealth for for, for themselves. There is no private sector to speak of or business leaders who, who are looking beyond their own company, not to say that they don't want to make a profit, but they were also looking at helping the country develop. But I also try to focus on the people for, for a couple of reasons. One of them, because if you look at the democratization of Korea and you compare it with other countries, clearly it was a long period in history in which the people were asking, demanding, protesting right uh, before their leaders to ask for, for democracy. Of course, certainly in the 1980s, but even before the 1980s. And, and I think that matters because uh, the people were trying to make the leaders accountable until democracy was achieved. And I think this also helped with economic development and having an economic development model that was more broad-based. Me, for example, is an expert on Korean uh, economic development, and I actually cite her work in, in my book, right? If you look at the economic development in Korea... There were high levels of equality compared to many other countries in which economic development came with huge inequality and not being distributed to the people of those countries. So there is one aspect to this. And, and the second aspect, what I also try to emphasize the role of the people is because I, I try to show that if we look at where Korea is today, for example, as a cultural power, we're basically talking about uh, artists, creatives that come up with their own ideas. And of course, there is a degree of government support in the internationalization of Korean culture, at least in the 1990s, uh, 2000s. 
but at the root of it is the people of Korea, right? And that's something that I try to trace to how in the past people were uh, demanding, coming up with their own ideas and demanding from the leaders, actually, that there was going to be change. Uh, of course, today there has also been demands for, for political change. Uh, we saw the candlelight uh, movement, for example, 2016, 2017, and, and the impeachment of Park, the president, back then, a people's-led process. And that's what I'm trying to show in the book, right? That this is not new, that this is not something that started to happen in the 2000s, in the 2010s, when Korea was a democracy, that you can trace the roots back to when the country was poor under a dictatorship and the people were demanding change and they were able to achieve it. Unmi, how do you see the legacy of Park Chung-hee now? I mean, as I said, that period of the 60s and 70s saw rapid economic growth in Korea, but it's also associated with pretty heavy political repression inside the country. How do you see, first of all, his economic legacy, and then the broader legacy of that period now on Korean society and and politics and culture? For someone who lived through that period, this is not always an easy, uh, a question that's easy to answer, but I often try to separate the economic versus political dimensions. Economically, I think Park's legacy is very clear in leading the country toward rapid industrialization, urbanization, and development. And the way in which he was focused and really put all of his energy and resources into that dream is quite remarkable. If you look at how things have changed in 1961, after he became president vis-a-vis what was done before, there were some similar policies in the government, but the way it was implemented was very different. So I do see the institutional makeup of the park legacy for development, for economic development, was very critical and important in Korea's history. But it also was layered with political issues in particular, he came to power through a military coup, which really cannot be justified under a democracy. So I think in one way, uh, the reason why he was so eager to push forward with economic development and with such speed is because if he failed at his economic delivery, his political legitimacy would crumble down. So what I would like to say is for development, if you just look at economic development, I think the strategic planning of the government and how he used foreign capital, including loans and including official development assistance or foreign aid, was very shrewd. And it was funneled through to economic development. And even when USAID, which was our largest donor, provided a lot of aid for poverty alleviation. The park government worked hard to use at least a part of that for development efforts. And I do see that these were very important uh, decisions and implementation of the park regime for economic development. On the other hand, the political oppression was very real and, and in particular, the labor really suffered from the 60s, but the 70s when our economic development was coupled with heavy and chemical industrialization. The labor unions also tried to grow and, and became even more militant. So the, the crash between the labor vis-a-vis the government was very violent, as you all know. And that led to the growing middle class, 
the the very strong labor union movement, all these things culminated in democratic transition in the, the mid-1980s. So the political side is marred with repression, oppression, hindering people's rights. So these are really big problems that cannot be overlooked regardless of how far we moved with economic development. So can I put this in a nutshell? I'm not sure. It's very complex, I think. And these are intertwined stories. So I try to separate it theoretically in in the research that I've done. But in practicality, they're not. They're intertwined. So it's very difficult to give one clean A or B. I understand what you're saying. It's a it's it's a mixed legacy and difficult to to separate out emotionally. I, I imagine as well as when looking at it analytically as well. Of course, Park's period in power ended pretty abruptly with his assassination in the in the late seventies, and then followed a pretty tumultuous period in Korean politics in the nineteen eighties before it emerges as the sort of democracy that we kind of know today with uh, presidents with five-year terms and so on and so forth. And of course, the Seoul Olympics back in 1988 was an important landmark in all of this. Ramon, can you just talk us briefly through that period, how Korea moved in the 1980s from the legacy of the Park era to this sort of fully-fledged democracy that we know today? The clash in the 1980s came because, I mean, Koreans were, were ready for democracy. They were expecting democracy, really, right? And the fact that you had another coup leading to a new dictatorship was really something that no Korean really could imagine would happen. So, so I think that's why it became so vicious in the 1980s, but also why the pro-democracy movement, and Umi mentioned, of course, uh, the labor movement was involved, but also the middle classes. There was also the, the student movement, the, the emergence of, of a strong feminist movement as well. All these different movements came together and really pressed for, for democracy. There was still high rates of economic growth, but it is true that the mindset of the people had really moved away from, from, from this idea that some people had in the 60s and 70s saying, well, you know, maybe a strong leader is, is what we need. And that's why you have this, this strong push for democracy coming in 1987. And it's very appropriate that you mentioned the 1988 Olympics, right? Because when Korea was awarded the Seoul Olympics, in a sense, this was going to be one of the legacies of the Chun government, right? Korea's emergence as an economic superpower and the Olympics would be showing this. But for the people, obviously, they didn't want that, right? And, and when the Olympics came, Korea had become a, a democracy and actually it became not only a celebration, so to speak, of Korea's economic emergence, but also a celebration of the democracy that the people had been fighting for. And I think that was quite important. Uh, it wasn't the, the only one, of course, right? Uh, other Olympics uh, have also served for these purposes. 1992 in Spain, for example, it also served uh, Spanish people, right, for us to celebrate Spain's emergence uh, as an economy, but also as a democracy. So the other aspect, I think, it is that uh, what we saw also in, in the 1980s, when we had the transition to democracy as well, is to see the emergence of different views uh, about how Korea should be moving forward, the division between left and right. Uh, I don't want to exaggerate the, the, the divisions, but, but clearly they do still exist today. And of course, by the time that Korea became a democracy, 
these divisions about the direction of the country, right, uh, were put to the ballot and it was the people who were deciding what vision of the country they wanted to support. And I think that's also an important legacy because it still affects Korean politics today, including the election that we had earlier this year. You talk also, and you mentioned it earlier, about the development or the emergence of this sense of civic nationalism uh, amongst the South Korean population. And you talk about how that sort of developed a bit out of this concept of Minjuk that was earlier on in, in South Korean history. Can you talk a bit about both of those concepts and how you see, how you define civic nationalism and, and, and its importance to South Korean culture and politics in the modern era? Sure, I found this very interesting, this idea of civic nationalism, uh, which is the idea that to be considered part of the, of the nation, to be considered part of the group, you don't have to be from a particular race or, or a religious group or have a particular ideology. You basically have to contribute to society. And what I found very interesting, there is this uh, world value survey that covers dozens of countries across the world. And it shows how the views of people about many different matters have changed over time. And in Korea, you see a very big change in the way people uh, see how one can be considered Korean, right? Especially among the younger population of Korea and how more and more people consider that race, which is more associated with the idea of uh, Minju that you mentioned, right? Uh, as a definition of what being Korea means, has been slowly replaced or now comes in combination with this idea of civic nationalism. As I said, if you look at people in the 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, it is quite fascinating to see how many of them actually from the 1990s onwards, this is not before the 1990s, but from the 1990s onwards, when the country became a democracy, they consider more and more important to have people contributing to society for them to be considered Korean uh, as opposed to race only. And this, of course, has to also to do with the way many South Koreans today uh, feel different from North Korea, right? Especially younger South Koreans uh, in their mentality, they feel closer to other developed countries. And I think this, this idea of civic nationalism without, as I said, completely displacing uh, Minjuk, it is true that for an increasing number of Koreans, it is the defining characteristic of what being a contributor to South Korean society is today. I think Ramon is a point, and I think, you know, when I mentioned in my first remark of him having a bird's eye view, I think Ramon is able to see Korea from within and from outside. So I think he has a very strong vantage point and his analysis are on the spot, on the mark. But living inside Korea, and I've been back, it's been over 25 years now, so my sensibility of being from outside is probably a little paler these days. I see more from the inside. But Koreans are still very monolithic compared to what I have experienced in the United States or when I work and travel through Europe. So the sense of being a nation, sense of being a country citizen, I think is still more homogenous than in other countries. Yet we do see political divisions that are very divisive and seem like we're going to very different directions. So I, I agree with this concept, but when you live inside, I, I think the divisions uh, appear stronger. From the outside, it still may seem more monolithic than from, from within. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure if I'm actually answering your question, yeah, but yeah. Uh, there is, is a slightly different feeling to that. What I might add is um, when I left Korea in the early 1980s, 
it was very much a very monolithic country. And I would sit in the back of the church or big auditorium and see everybody with black hair and similar, you know, facial features. After I returned in the late 1990s, people were expressing themselves more. They no longer all had black hair, but you would see blondes, auburns, red hair, blue <laughs> hair, and green hair. So uh, people were starting to express their individuality like they'd never done before. So the country has changed quite a bit inside as well. So you can see a bit more diversity. But in terms of how we embrace others and how we incorporate otherness into ourselves, I think we're quite not there as Europe or uh, U.S. or North American countries. It's very, very interesting. I, I suppose a lot of democracies these days, there appear to be very sharp divisions between right and left. And I guess in some countries, you look at that and think, is there actually an overarching sense of the country that people are still united behind, despite the fact that they have these sharp divisions over you know, which party they belong to and so on? And we see in South Korea, I mean, obviously, the recent presidential election was pretty close right. between the yeah. two candidates. I mean, in South Korea, then, do you still get a sense that okay, we have these sharp political divisions, but we're still South Koreans, we're still one country, we're still part of the same community and society? Or do you feel that, as in other countries we could mention, that's fracturing somewhat? I think that we do recognize the political differences, but we, we do still see this as a nation, as a country. The number of long-term foreign residents, that's the official term, uh, who live in South Korea, who are not ethnic Korean. The percentage is now, I think, about 4%. So it's much lower than many other countries that we're familiar with. So there's the strong current of what Korean is, what our language and culture. So there's still a lot of homo hom homogeneity in, in spite of the political differences that we have. Ramon, you've been to Korea recently, and you visit quite often, and you spend a great deal of time. And what what is your sense of the division and diversity issues? I think that the discussion about individuality is fascinating. Um, I first lived in Korea now 19 years ago, and, and one thing I clearly remember is that back then, you also well in in Korea, no one dyes their hair and no one no one wears a tattoo, right? Those are things that are frowned upon. <laughs> they are not done, right? And if you go down Korea today. <laughs> Everyone has different hair color, right? Many people do, and and and, and you see tattoos, for example, uh, clearly clear shown, right? And I find that interesting because I think it's a signal of how there has been this change that Dunmi has been mentioning, and and it's true that also, for example, in in the number of foreigners who who live in Korea has clearly changed. Back 2003, 2004, when I was first there, there were very few Europeans, for example. It's true that there were more and more Korean Americans and Korean Chinese, for example. And I think that has changed not only in Seoul, Busan, if you go to the countryside now, for example, there are many uh, foreign spouses, uh, for example, from Southeast Asia. If you look at Korean companies, uh, universities as well, and of course, we can talk about IWA, for example, you have seen this change as well. And it also has to be said that to an extent, the change has also come from Koreans themselves because Umi can relate to this, right? But the number of Koreans who now live overseas and then come back has really been growing. If you look at the statistics, especially from the late 1980s, early 1990s, 
later on also in the 2000s. And I think that also changes the mentality of the people. When you're exposed to foreign ideas, then you come back and you say, well, some things uh, overseas may work better. Some others may be worse than in, than in my country, but they are exposed to these ideas. And my impression is that it has really happened in Korea in the almost 20 years that I've been living, visiting the country. Turning to another topic, I mean, one of the themes, again, that runs through Ramon's book is the role of women, the position of women in Korean society, and how that's changed over the years. Nevertheless, the role of women, it's another area where there appear to be sharp political divides. I mean, in the, again, in the recent presidential campaign, we saw Yoon Suk-yeol, the eventual winner, sort of playing on the fears of young men and the fact that their perception, at least, that they're now being disadvantaged in Korean society. Can you talk a little bit about that, uh, how you see the sort of position of women has developed over the years in South Korea and, and where you still see things need to change and progress in terms of women's presence in society and, and, and the broader culture? I want to start with one statistic. The Global Gender Gap Report comes out of the, the World Economic Forum or the Davos Forum since I think about 2015. When the first report came out, Korea was ranked 115 in the gender gap ranking around the world. And it was largely because of the wage gap between men and women. Women were earning about 60% of what men were earning. Uh, Political participation was also very low. I just looked at the most recent global gender gap ranking, and Korea has now gotten into two digits thank goodness, but it's only 99th in the world. So you started the session by saying Korea is is one of the largest economies, probably in the top 10, uh, seventh in terms of trade and so on. So Korea's economic prowess in the world does not measure uh, the gender gap that we see. I don't think there are any other sector, any other issue in Korean society that ranks so poorly. Obviously, we have progressed quite a bit in terms of women in society, women in academia, women in politics, women in business. We've all improved dramatically. However, there are still these inequality issues that are very real. Unfortunately, during the the presidential election, what young men were feeling against job insecurity, against advancement in society, I think they misplaced their anger to the other young counterparts. They were losing against these young women for a job, for a position, uh, who were also suffering in this very difficult youth unemployment problem. So the the anger, I think, was misplaced. It should have been directed toward uh, the falling economy, uh, the political division, and this and that. But I think, unfortunately, they turned to an easier target, more tangible one. But of course, this is just a quick analysis, but requires a deeper analysis of why is the, um, the reality with these statistics show that there is still women that are being underrepresented in business and politics and so on, yet there is this animosity against uh, young women for jobs and so on. So I do feel the anger was misplaced and politically manipulated to highlight the division 
rather than working toward a common goal, improving the economy, improving opportunities for everyone. And the politicians, I think, were very shrewd and taking advantage of that. Now, just to finish off with a quick discussion of Korea's extraordinary cultural success and, and certainly the rise of it, its soft power, most noticeably, of course, with the rise of K-pop and bands like BTS, Korean cinema as well, obviously a, a striking success, uh, not just Oscar winning, but the general popularity of Korean cinema around the world. Ramon, what do you see as the sort of secret of South Korea's success in this realm? How have they succeeded where maybe other Asian countries have, have lagged behind? Yeah, just uh, a couple of days ago, I was walking through central London and I saw this very long queue outside a restaurant and then a very long queue outside a, a beauty products uh, shop. And both of them were Korean, right? Something that a few years ago was unthinkable. And to a large extent, this has been promoted by Korean culture, right? Yes, there may be good food and good beauty products, but, but many people overseas, right, get to know them through, through Korean dramas, for example, by following their favorite K-pop bands, right? So I think this shows the power of the culture in making Korea uh, better known. And I think that there are a couple of things. First of all, is that the creativity of Korean artists is crucial. And the fact that this creativity is not a hinder, right? And one of the things, for example, I do mention in the book is that when in the early 1990s, what we call today K-pop started to, to emerge. To a large extent, this was possible because there was no censorship uh, anymore. Movie directors could tackle any topic that they wanted, same with dramas, but also musicians themselves. Uh, they were able to sing about whatever they wanted without fear of, of censorship. This matters uh, hugely, the, the creativity of the artists themselves. And I do mention this because sometimes you, you hear the idea that, well, the government basically created Hali or the Korean wave, and, and I think that's a misrepresentation. Uh, and I think the second really uh, important aspect is the, the universal themes Yes, there are Korean products and uh, cultural products, uh, and many of them talk about Korean issues. The example of Parasite that we all know about was talking about inequality inside Korea. But these are universal themes, right? Uh, if we look, for example, some of the topics that BTS covers, such as mental health issues among young people, uh, is something that we see more and more, not only in Korea, of course, but across the world. So I think this universality of themes uh, make them more, more appealing. But, but first, you need the artists that will be able to tackle this because they work in an environment in which they're able to do so. In me, just to finish off with you, is this cultural success, and apologies if you're a, a BTS fan, but uh, for, for ordinary South Koreans, is this cultural success a, a source of pride, a source of, of interest, or is, is this something that uh, you, you know, you're not so concerned about? I think it's interesting. Uh, Koreans always felt they're much bigger than they really are. So we have this big, you know, imagination of how important we are sometimes. Uh, so if you go around Korea, we like big cars, although we're a small country. When I go to Japan or to Germany, they people are fine with smaller cars, but somehow we just fell in love with big cars, and I think it has to do with our big egos. Right, just a joke. <laughs> but, you know, I uh, did a, a very early study about Hallyu and tried to understand why Korea's K-drama, it, it was first K-drama, and K-pop that became very popular, were gaining popularity. And it, I think had to do with globalization, that we're able to see cultures from other countries, unlike the, the ones from 
the core nations in the world, US, uh, UK, and so on. These other cultures were very exotic and interesting. Uh, so that, that wave of globalization, I think, was the time when Korean K-pop were becoming popular. So I, I look at the, the broader global trends. And then there's this misconception that Hallyu or K-pop or K-drama, K-movies were supported like Korea's development drama in the early 1960s. And that's not true. I have to uh, agree with Ramon that Korea's cultural uh, advancement has very little to do with government. They got out of their way and allowed them, as Ramon said, uh, disregard the censorship, and that allowed a blasphemy of Korean culture. But that's moving a negative condition, but the positive energy of people of loving music, drama, art, that was always a very strong element of the Korean people. And finally, I think Korea's popular culture's rise has also to do with Korea's rise in the world. And they're able to see Korea and became more interested. Uh, Korea became much more attractive. For me, my work has been in uh, international development cooperation recently. And when they see Korea as a new donor, the perception of Korea as a donor is very different from how they approach traditional donors from the United States or Western Europe. They see as a, a country that has also experienced extreme poverty in recent years, has security tensions, but overcame and was able to stand on its own. So Korea as a rising power in culture or other areas is more uh, acceptable or is less threatening than some other countries. So I think all of these things are combined to help Korea rise in terms of culture. But having a cultural influence has always been a yearning for Koreans. They would see that as the, the last sign that Korea has, has risen and has done well going beyond the economic and political influence. Brilliant. Thank you so much for those thoughts. And thank you for that terrific discussion between the two of you. Obviously, very wide ranging. All of those topics, we could have gone into to more depth. But um, Ramon's book, you'll find more if you, if you read it, just to give it another plug. It's called From Shrimp to Whale and available in all good bookshops, I'm sure, Ramon. Um, thank you to both of you for that excellent discussion. Thank you to all of you out there for, for listening to this podcast once again. You can find many more topics and so on that we've covered in, in our archive on whatever platform that you listen to. Thank you to Alexander Lestrange for doing the music for CSDS Asia Matters once again and thank you to Rebecca Bailey for helping to produce this podcast episode. Uh, I hope you'll have enjoyed it and that you'll stay with us for for more uh, episodes from CSDS Asia Matters. Thank you and goodbye. Bye.